it was the single biggest goal and the daily thought that I had, you know, I just, I had to get back into that car. There was genuinely no doubt that I, I wouldn't do it. It was like, it's happening. It's just a matter of when. Hello, I'm Richard Ryder, and you're listening to My Driving Force, a podcast from the Disabled Drivers Association about what drives people to reach their full goals and achieve their full potential in life. Over the next six podcasts, I will be talking to DDAI members and friends about what their driving force in life is. In this episode, I'm talking to Nikki Bradley, a DDA member, disability activist, motivational speaker and adaptive adventurer. Nikki runs her own business and set up a campaign called Fighting Fit for Ewings in 2013. Nikki is from and lives in Donegal. Hello, Nikki. You're very welcome to My Driving Force podcast. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So, Nikki, I tell you, just I was chatting to my wife last week about who my next guest was going to be on the show, and I mentioned your name, and she said, The Nikki Bradley, motivational speaker and adaptive adventure. How did you manage to get her on your show? And well, I told her I couldn't reveal my sources, but as it turns out, she follows you on Instagram. So, how many fellers do you have, and, and do you find social media in general? Do you find it good or? Yeah, it's about 14,000 on Instagram oh, wow. at the moment. Um, I find this amazing for direct engagement, with, especially with cancer families. So, you know, as recent as I had a message at three o'clock this morning from a, a mother in America whose daughter has been diagnosed with Ewing's um, and has just had a rotation plasty. And she asked, would I be willing to have a call with the little girl just, you know, to give her a little boost? And that came in through Instagram. And obviously without the likes of those social media platforms, we just wouldn't be able to connect in that way. So yeah, I, I love using them. I think that when they're used right, it's a great tool to have. Exactly. And 14,000, that's a lot of people, as you say, you know, to be able to help that little girl now would just be amazing with, with the experience you've had and what you've been through. So that's great. Just before we get started, I, I just wanted to give listeners a, a flavour of some of your achievements to date. So uh, you're the first person to climb four Irish mountain peaks on crutches in 32 hours, mind you. The first woman to abseil off Fanad Head Lighthouse the first female on crutches to trek 24 kilometres on Beacon Mountain Range in Wales. And you recently completed the women's mini marathon. So have I forgot anything? <laughs> I'm actually tired well, reading that out. There's a few more that's been thrown in over the years. But yeah, there there's some of the, I suppose, some of the firsts that, you know, they were nice to take off the list. I have to say it's been a fun couple of years doing these challenges they're very addictive <laughs> that's amazing that's like incredible and and look there's too many more to mention because i did look obviously i've been you know looking into so much stuff out there about you and what you've done you know since this happened to you back when you when you were 16 and i suppose to become an, an adaptive adventurer we, we have to go back a little bit to when you were diagnosed with ewing's sarcoma a rare form of bone cancer um you know when you were 16 years old i can't imagine how that must have been for you coping with you know i suppose being a teenager and just wanting to be with your friends and so what, what were the consequences of, of that when it did happen to you so it was quite dramatic to be honest you know i was diagnosed by obviously my consultant and i literally didn't go back to school after that day like there was no go back for a few weeks or a few months or whatever it was like out of school from that day forward and my treatment then started about a month later after just after Christmas. So then what followed was about a year and a half worth of intensive treatment, both chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and I had my tumour removed over in London. Surgeons in Ireland, they basically admitted that Ewing's is so rare. And obviously this is going back now 20 plus years. So Ewing's is, is rare now, but it was really rare then. Sure. Surgeons just didn't feel comfortable 
in Ireland because they just hadn't experienced it as much as somebody in London. But even my surgeon in London, like, had limited experience. So the only thing, you know, I was lucky in that Ewing's is a bone cancer and it was localized. So that meant that it was unlikely to spread if they were able to manage to capture everything. So they they did. They were happy with the surgery. My chemotherapy went well. There was one or two ups and downs, which you would expect from chemo. And my radiotherapy was... To be honest, a walk in the park. It was, I quite enjoyed the radiotherapy, which is very strange. Yeah. <laughs> I think compared to the chemo radiotherapy for me, and I know that every cancer patient's story is different, but for me, radiotherapy, there was at the time there was zero consequences, no pain whatsoever. Um, it was a little 20-minute session every day in St. Luke's Hospital in Dublin. And because it was daily, and I obviously lived in Donegal, I moved in with my grandmother who was living in Kildare at the time. And like once I finished my sessions, we would just go for drives or go to Dundrum or, you know, we would yeah. just hang out. And honestly, it was quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that was when you were kind of 17, 18, was it? 16, 17, 18? 17, yeah. yeah. Having radiotherapy. Um, wow. So it was quite nice. Like I've spoken about this quite a few times that I've lost my grandmother now. She's, she's gone oh. since 2011. But um, Sorry to, hear that. to be a 17-year-old and have an opportunity to spend it was a six week period where I had radiotherapy every day, except for the weekends. And to be able to spend that quality time with your grandmother, like, you know, if you're really honest at 17, you probably wouldn't really want <laughs> to spend that time with your granny. But in my case, it just was the situation and kind of being thrown into that situation turned out to be amazing. You know, I got to spend amazing time with my grandmother and I still look back on it now with really fond memories. And, you know, that all started oh, with that's lovely. cancer. Yeah, so, it really is. Yeah. You'd be, as I said, as I said, right? as a teenager, you just want to be out with your friends and whatever, you know, that kind of teenagery stuff. Yeah. It's a hard time at that time anyway. So, um, no, that was a lovely thing to be able to spend to grind. Yes, and you had two, two hip replacements and ultimately a rotation plasty. Can you explain to people what that is? Because I'd never heard of it before, personally, anyway. So rotation plasty is, again, I, I'm a fan of being unique and having <laughs> rare things. Sure. Um, rotation plasty in Ireland, the UK, and kind of a lot of this side of the world, rotation plasties are not common. And the only reason is because of how they look cosmetically. And um, medically, they work brilliant most of the time. So to just explain what it is, yeah. rotation plasty is a, a form of amputation where they amputate the lower half of the leg, rotate it 180 degrees and reattach it. And the purpose of it is it, it's used for two different reasons. In my case, the area that needed to be replaced was my hip, but the rest of my leg was completely fine. So I often say, you know, it was the best form of recycling rather than just get rid of the lower half of the leg. We repurposed it wow. um, but by rotating the leg. The joints are able to move um, in different ways. So as we speak today, I'm sitting here with my knee joint in the area where my hip used to be. Wow. And obviously that part of my leg then on extends down onto my ankle um, and my ankle acts as a knee joint. Um, so it's, it's really hard to explain. Yeah, it's um, I'm trying to picture it in my head. It's like the, the bionic I woman. <laughs> I, I, re I encourage your listeners just to Google it or yeah. even just jump onto my Instagram and have a little look sure. at one of my posts because I, you know, I, I decided when I was having the rotation plasty, I made it very public and I did that for a reason. It was yeah. hard personally to do that because you're, you know, you're, you're putting yourself out there and you, you can get some strange comments. And yeah. I certainly did get that, but I'm glad I did it because it showed people what, what can be done medically. Um, and if you're willing to, yeah. you're willing to overcome the physical side of it and how it looks cosmetically then what it can do for you is amazing. So I decided I would share absolutely everything right up to the day of my surgery. I had my best friend 
take over my Instagram. Yeah. And she would update mm-hmm. my followers on the progress. Wow. Um, so, what is your Instagram? Just in case we forget at the end, I don't want to, people just so can people can find yeah. you. Just Google it. Yeah. Nikki Bradley Speaks. So N-I-K-K-I underscore Bradley underscore Speaks. Okay. So then you got a prosthetic leg then, was it last year, 2022? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So I had surgery um, in February of last year, and then I received my first prosthetic in October of last year. And the first prosthetic was meant to bend when I walk because I was obviously I'd be using my ankle joint as a knee, which would allow it to bend. Yeah. But I just simply didn't have the range of movement in my ankle to be able to use it properly. So I made the decision that for my first prosthetic, we would we would use a straight leg. So it would be it's called a static leg. Okay. So to be honest, you know, I had no idea what I was getting myself in for the last year walking with a straight leg. Again, I often say to people, you know, if you're listening today, just get up and walk around your house for the next five minutes without bending both your ankle or your knee. Walk up and down your stairs, drop something and try and pick it up, you know, do these types of things and you'll get a little bit of an understanding of what the last year has been like. Absolutely. To be honest, with hindsight, I'm so glad that we opted for the straight leg first because it has made me unbelievably grateful for what is to come. So I was in Dublin actually yesterday in Ottobock, which is, um, that's where my specialists are based. Yeah. And my second prosthetic will be completed in the next couple of weeks and that leg will bend. Okay. So I'm just honestly like a child at Christmas. Um, I'm so excited because that will allow me to get back on the mountains. And that is the biggest thing that has been missing since I had my surgery. So I, that's I, your goal. That's what you want to be able to be to do, and and this should be able yeah. to do that for you. And and I read that you uh, you actually named your prosthetic leg Sersha, uh, which means freedom. Is that that right? I did, yeah. Um, so I decided again. I put it out. I just kind of I kind of just let the my my followers just take a lot of control, really, and just be as involved as possible. So I put it out on my stories on Instagram that I would like that I wanted to name it and make it a part of me. Um, I'm not normally like, you know, the way a lot of people would name their cars and name. I don't normally do that, but I don't know why this time with my leg, I was like, it feels important. And a friend of mine suggested that I, I call it Searsha meaning freedom. And as soon as she said it, I was like, that could not be more perfect. That nailed it, did it? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. That was the end of the the name um, suggestions. That was it picked in one go. Excellent. And you set up um, Fighting Fit for Ewings, as I said, kind of earlier, back in 2013. And what was that for? Or why did you do that? So in 2013, I had a meeting, a very poignant meeting with my consultants um, in Dublin. And during that meeting, I was basically told that there was nothing more that they could do for me. And it was could have gone one of two ways. Like, you know, at that point, I'd spent the first half of the year up and down to Dublin meeting with pain specialists, with my my consultant, with, with a number of different people because we were trying to get my pain under control and just to, to give me a better quality of life. So when I was told that they kind of had reached the end of the road in terms of what they could do for me, it could have been the beginning of the end in terms of any form of motivation that I had left. But actually what ended up happening was the complete opposite. It gave me more motivation to live as as good of a life as I could live with what I had rather than waiting to get better because that is what I had been. I, I'd kind of been making excuses for a number of years. At this point, I was a permanent crutch user and I would look at the different things that I wanted to do and the goals that I wanted to set. But I would always say, when I get off the crutches, I'll I'll tackle that. Yeah. I realized that that's an excuse. You know, that was me giving myself permission to just sit on my bum and do nothing. Yeah, and who'd blame you? I know, I can tell you, most people out there wouldn't, you know. They, they, and they you know what? I, sorry for you know, themselves. I, 
Yeah, I always say like there's a time and a place for that. And um, when you are given bad news, you obviously need time to digest that news. But giving yourself a cutoff point where you have to kind of, you know, get yourself back up and going again. That's that's what this meeting ended up doing for me. So it, it kind of gave me back, the, you know, the fire in my belly to make the most of what I had. So I went home and I had a really big think about what I wanted to do next. And I kept coming back to something with my story needs to be heard and shared because, you know, that by that stage, that's like I'd already had my two hip replacements. I'd had a, a really bad broken femur because of the the bone density weakening. I'd had so much stuff all stemming from from radiotherapy. Um, and my story, by even those early days, was very unusual for someone my age. And I, I just kept, I, I had this feeling that I would walk around with thinking, you know, there's something in this. I need to do something with this. I had a big think and that's where Fighting Fit for Ewans came from. So it's an awareness campaign designed to highlight the importance of exercise rehabilitation and also to obviously raise awareness for Ewings. And again, I made it very public. At the time, I wrote for two of the local papers up here in Donegal and I would ask my readers and my followers to challenge me. So the campaign was based around physical challenges. One, to make it fun and, and engaging and two, to give me the motivation to get in the gym and strengthen the rest of my body because that often happens when you have a chronic illness that you you hyper focus on the one part of you that has something wrong and you forget that there's so much of you that's perfectly fine so for yeah. me the only part of me that ever had something wrong was my right hip the rest of me was completely fine so by challenging myself and adapting movements and gym sessions and stuff i realized that there's a whole world of stuff that I could actually do. And that's where the abseiling off fan at Lighthouse, the the fan dance, which is the those the Brecon Beacons yeah. uh, trek. And, you know, it's it, once you start looking, yeah. the, the possibilities are endless. That's just amazing. I'm sure there's lots more that you're going to be doing once you get this new this new prosthetic leg. I mean, will you call the new one the same search as well? Or, yeah. I don't know. I haven't yeah, really see. thought about that. <laughs> I might cross that bridge. Sirsha too. Sirsha too, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so look, so I suppose moving on then, I suppose to being a disability activist. Um, and I know, look, you and I know each other, come back a little bit. I know you have a big, big bugbear in life. And um, that's people parking in accessible parking bays without a parking permit or a blue badge. And I think really, really that that gets gets your goat, doesn't it? I, it does. And I'm, I know that the listeners of this particular podcast, I just know that they'll also feel the exact same way because, you know, getting your blue badge, it's not something that should be taken lightly. It's it's there for people that genuinely need it. And even yesterday when I was traveling down to Dublin, we obviously stopped in a few different places and every single place I stopped, there were people parked in spaces that they shouldn't have been. And it just, it honestly drives me bonkers. <laughs> um, I can tell, and tell listeners, yeah, yeah sorry, how it, how it affects you. I mean, how it puts you out in terms of you go to look for a space and one is not there available and it's been used by somebody yeah. illegally. So for obviously for everybody that has a blue badge, you know, everybody's disability is different. For me, because my current leg doesn't bend properly, um, I have a little lever at the side that I can click to, to bend it to fit, but, it, you know, it's still uh, yeah. very rigid. kind of Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I need to be able to open my my driver's door completely as far as it can open in order to be able, and I have to push my chair back as far as it can go every single time I get in and out of my car. And I mean, every time. Yeah. If I don't push my chair back, I, I don't have the space. And it's the same with if the doors only open a little bit. 
I almost have to stand up in my seat to try and shimmy out. And then when you come back to your car to try and open the door and obviously say if you've got stuff in your hand and you're trying to put mm. stuff in, sometimes it's it's almost impossible. Like I've had to ask people to, to reverse away so I can get in. And like, yeah. you know, you're standing there in the lashing rain and you're trying not to get annoyed, but at the same time, yeah. you are. So like a, a regular parking space is, is of no use. So you need the wheelchair accessible parking spot to be able to do what you just explained there. And that's, that's. Yeah. I just wanted to say that to people. That's how it affects you as well. I mean, has it ever happened that you've had to actually go home because you couldn't get a space or you just had to go somewhere else because you just gave up? Or? It happened multiple times up here in a particular supermarket. I won't name them, yeah. but they're very well-known Irish supermarket. And the problem with a lot of car parks is they're privately owned, meaning that, you know, you are limited with what you can do. So if you if you go into a garage, the car park is usually owned by the garage. So if you want, you can go in and complain, ask for the manager, complain directly to them. But in a lot of big supermarkets um, or retail parks, you can't do that. So when somebody parks illegally, they know that there's no repercussions, really. Yeah. There is, to a certain extent, if they get unlucky by, you know, some security passing or whatever. But um, a lot of the time, there's literally nothing you can do. So there's been times, like, because independence is so important to me, I always do the shopping myself, the grocery shopping. So I hold, in my left hand, I have my crutch, which I need to walk. And in the right hand, I have a trolley. So you can imagine when you have a trolley full of shopping, how hard it is sometimes to push it with two hands. And I'm trying to push it with one. Yeah. You then take into account that I live in Donegal and we're not known for our good weather. So you add, <laughs> you know, driving wind and rain to the mix. And then you add back that I've had to park maybe like at the very end of the car park because the spaces have all been taken up by people that shouldn't be in yeah, them. Nightmare. And it is a nightmare. And by the time you get back to your car, you're drenched, you're agitated and it can be quite upsetting. And there has been times where I've just say the weather has been too bad, where I, I know I won't be able to complete the task essentially. So I've yeah. had to just either go home or go somewhere else. And it's, it's a disappointing. Very annoying. Yeah. Yeah. We worked on that and the, the, you worked with the DDAI on that in the recent D Baywatch campaign where we were asking for the legislation to be changed whereby, you know, the police and um, traffic wardens could go into private car parks and give a fine or whatever, which they can't yeah. do. So that's that's still ongoing. And another thing yeah. we're working on as well, just to let listeners know, um, we've been recently in touch with each other, um, tr working on a plan to get a kind of a text alert scheme going in Donegal. You can you explain that to what that's going to be about? So basically it, it's, it's giving people back power. Um, so if you see somebody that's in, and what I would say is some people get annoyed as soon as they see a car in a disabled spot and they haven't even checked for the badge and they're already getting all riled up. And what I would say is if you can just take take a minute and always check for the badge before you react. Um, and if the badge isn't there, then the idea is that on every um, disabled spot sign, there will be an additional little plaque that will have a number that you can text if this person is illegally parked and that text will go directly to the warden so that warden will know exactly where to go to issue a fine. And it, it makes their job easier and it gives back, as I say, it gives you back that little bit of control knowing that you've maybe solved that problem in a yeah. small way um, on that day. And it's, for I know for me, like I, I can't wait until it's in you place see, because yeah. I, I will be using it probably daily. Yeah, and we're <laughs> going to fight for that. And it's actually, you know, it's a deterrent as well so that people will say, oh, oh look, yeah. there is a text there, so I'm not going to park there. You know, whereas, and my plan or my hope is that we make the sign very visible. Yeah. We make the number very visible. So like when people do park in it, that plaque is, you know, I would nearly even like to make it quite a bright colour yeah. on, on the additional sign so that 
it's new as you say it's a complete deterrent like and if people still park then it's it's glaringly obvious that they shouldn't be there yeah so look we're, we're working on that and we'll we let people yeah. know how that goes i wanted to talk to you about driving and how getting back driving helped your recovery and in a recent article it was in the Image magazine. And by the way, you've also been, I've seen you in VIP magazine, the Irish Independent. And I've seen you on the Irish Times. You're doing an ad at the moment as well. So you're, 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 you're everywhere. But you mentioned that getting back driving, me, what it means to you. And I want to, if you don't mind, tell listeners a quote. This is from um, the Image magazine. So anybody that knows me will remember how much I missed driving. Driving is linked directly to independence. As someone that lives in countryside in Donegal, not having car means that not being able to go places and independence is extremely important to me. So that was a quote from you from the magazine. So I wanted to ask you, how did you get back driving? And as a right leg amputee, what adaptations did you need to get fitted to enable you to drive? Yeah, well, the first thing was we'll start with a bit of heartbreak. So um, it's the car that I used to drive for someone my age and the fact that I'm, I'm female. It seemed to be something that a lot of people found strange. I used to drive a Ford Mondeo. Okay. I absolutely loved that car. Nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> and it, you know, it was a two liter, nice and powerful um, manual. I, I loved it. And before my my surgery, like I always considered that car was my key to independence. And I every time I got into it, I especially because I, you know, for my work, I have to travel to be able to drive down as far as Cork myself and not have to bother anybody for a lift or whatever. Like it was always so important to me. So whenever I did have my surgery, I was told that I wouldn't be able to drive a manual pretty much mm. ever again, that I have to go for an automatic. And I know a lot of people love automatics, but to me, I honestly was devastated getting rid of the Mondeo because that car being sold was me saying goodbye to my independence. And for eight to nine months um, after my surgery and in and around my surgery and afterwards, I wasn't able to drive because I didn't have my prosthetic and I wasn't healed. So like obviously after large surgery, you know, there's a certain amount of time before you can be insured. Yeah. And during that time, probably my biggest daily setback was the fact that I couldn't drive. My family had to rally around constantly to, you know, bring me things and and everything. And I I almost felt like a teenager again and I absolutely hated it. Mm -hmm. So my biggest goal and my biggest motivation or motivator to get well again was to get back on the road. And when I got my, so I'm currently driving a Yaris Luna Sport. So it looks a little bit like a small Jeep. Oh yeah. Uh, The adaption that I've had done is I was offered the hand controls, but my opinion on adaptions in any form is only in my, and very much my opinion, but go for the minimum that you need. So for me, there's nothing wrong with my left leg. So why would I not use it? So I opted for the left leg a pedal. Accelerate. And it's taken in and out easily, meaning that other people can drive my car. And yeah, I it, the day that it arrived, oh my God, it was and one that, of the happiest <laughs> days in recent memory. And did that, did that take a bit of getting used to? Did you have to do lessons or did you, what, how did you go about that? Or? No. Oh, well done. Well done. Um, I think because I had thought about it so much that when I got into the car, I just drove and it was (laughs) like you can opt for lessons and it's not, you're not legally required because as long as you have a full clean license, you know, you kind of are given the the free reign to to just go. Um, But yeah, I I learned fairly quickly. And I, I think a lot of people would relate to that, that when you know, my right leg physically couldn't move, so mm. it made it easier. I think it would probably actually be harder for you to yeah, drive with yeah. the left leg and not use your right. Mm. Whereas when you physically can't use it, then 
that's, that's a very good point. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was quite a quick learning curve for me. And oh my God, like yeah. I was one of those people that were ringing people up, you know, that were maybe five miles away asking if they wanted a pint of milk just so oh, I could drive. That's brilliant. That is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. brilliant. And did, did you qualify for the Disabled Drivers and Pastures Tax Relief Scheme? Did you get some help with, with buying the car? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And mm. it's, do you know what? I have to say, like, just I am so grateful that that is something yeah. that's available to people like me because it really makes all the difference. Because obviously, like when you're facing the surgery that I was facing, I, I wasn't able to work for most of 2022. And obviously that takes its toll. Yeah. So to have that relief scheme there in place um, and it's it's one that it's very hard to get. Um, I applied for it years ago before my surgery and I was denied because oh, I was actually I, I wasn't considered disabled enough, which hmm. I thought was strange. But anyway. Yeah, um, no, it is extremely difficult to get. Yeah, um, it is hard. And I do think that like, you know, again, in hindsight, I, I'm very glad that it is very difficult to get because obviously then it's not open to abuse or for yeah, abuse. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. So that's because that's you're back driving now. You're you're driving the length and breadth of the country um, with your own business and your motivational speaking. Do you want to give yourself a little plug on the that end of things or, you know, you, you're yeah. available to do that? I'll never turn that down. So my business is called The Motivation Factory and it's essentially, yeah, I'm a motivational speaker. I speak to pretty much anybody that's like any corporate charity um, one area that I, I hope to go into in the new year is in the area of young people and sport. So obviously, you know, say if a young person has played, let's just say, for argument's sake, rugby all throughout their secondary schooling, and they have great plans to go on to third level and continue the sport. And, you know, it's a huge part of their life. And then maybe on the field one day, they have a life-changing injury. How yeah. do they move forward from that? You know, when you're young, your resilience, it's, you know, it's not as strong as, some of my ages would be. Um, so I really want to kind of be able to work with young people to show them and to to give them a strategy, a coping strategy of, you know, what they what different things that they can put in place to get them through that, to show them that there's still options out there, even if the worst case scenario happens, that there is still, you know, you can still be involved in the sport that you love. You just might have to look at it a different way. So I, that's hopefully the plan for the new year. Excellent. Um, I think that'll be so helpful for people and an amazing Thing to be able to do, um, yeah, pass on yeah. your, you know, your experience and your, I suppose, your help for people. Um, that would be just amazing. So any any help I can be or we can be, we can do that. So look, we're coming to the end now, and, I, and a question from there are previous guests, Sean O'Kelly, and I suppose you've kind of answered this by our last conversation. But who, who or what encouraged you to start and to get back driving after your operation? I'm always almost embarrassed saying this because I'd say people normally, you know, nominate somebody else, but I'm actually going to say it myself. It yeah. was actually self-motivated. Yeah. I, it was the single biggest goal and the daily thought that I had, you know, I just, I had to get back into that car. There was genuinely no doubt that I, I wouldn't do it. It was like, it's happening. It's just a matter of when. And because obviously there's so many delays with vehicles at the moment with, you know, everything that's going on in the world, there was a lot of it that was taken out of my control. I was actually ready to drive a lot sooner than I got my car. So, and I'm not the most patient person, I won't <laughs> lie. So when I had when I had to sit and wait, if anything, it just made me more determined to make the most of it when I did get the car. And it'll be something that till the day I die, I will never take for granted. And I would encourage, you know, if you're physically able to take lessons go and do it. There's no excuse. Just get out there. I know it's scary, but just get out there. Get the lessons under your belt because it genuinely being able to drive is life changing. Very good. And then what is your driving force in life? It's quite simple. I am just very aware that, you know, things can go wrong with very little notice and it makes me 
just more and more determined to make the most of what I have and make the most of the here and now. And that's kind of my like my daily driving force with it's kind of where my motivation for everything starts because I, I've, you know, I have multiple times since from the age of 16 to today, there have been times where there was no way I could have guessed what was around the corner. Um, and I had a very, you know, I had all these plans, life plans like everybody else. And then within the space of an hour, my entire path had changed. It's just kept me motivated to, to as I say, make the most of the here, of, of here and now, knowing that it can all change tomorrow. And then uh, finally, I suppose um, we do this with all our guests. Um, we would like you to ask a question for our next guest. Yeah, so I know that whenever I was waiting to get the car, I had certain locations that I really wanted to drive to. So I'd love to know from your next guest, was there a standout location that you had in mind that you wanted to drive yourself to that you could kind of visualize you behind the wheel getting to? And how did it feel when you actually achieved that driving goal? Great question. So look, Nikki, thank you so, so, so much for joining me on this episode of My Driving Force. Look, you're a true inspiration and, and, I'm, and I'm looking forward to working with you on projects in the near future. So look, thanks so much once again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Driving Force podcast. In our next podcast, I will be talking to Peter Gorey, a DDA board member, farmer and health and safety consultant. If you're interested in finding out more about the Disabled Drivers Association and the services we offer, please visit ddai.ie. Or if you'd like to contact me for any reason, please email me at podcast at ddai.ie. Thank you for listening and have a great day, whatever you're up to.